You look around our society, look at American culture right now. More and more people calling good evil and evil good. We have been taught, and sometimes we teach our children to always listen to your conscience. Always listen to your conscience. No. The conscience cannot be this final and ultimate guide for decisions and things that we do. You do not let your conscience be the ultimate judge and decider of things you watch. Oh, I can watch this move. My conscience allows me. What does the Bible say? You can abstain for certain, from certain foods. All the Jewish feasts that you celebrate, all the mosaic laws that you're trying to keep, they will continue holding you unclean before God. Because the only way for you to be clean before God is by embracing, trusting, running to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And once again, Lord, as we prepare to hear you speaking to us, we pray that you'd speak to us with clarity. We pray that you'd speak to us with authority, with conviction. I pray that you'd help us to see our sins, help us to run away from our sins and cling to Jesus Christ. I pray that Jesus would be made clear in our minds, and I pray that his arms that are open would be powerful to embrace all of us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and you continue walking through this section here of verses 9 through 16, or verses 5 through 16, better, we can have a, a whole context here. So I'll invite you to stand if you can, and I'm going to read verse 5 and then jump to verse 9 and then read through verse 16. So Titus 1, starting verse 5, says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now verse 9, referring to the elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of their circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Oh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men, who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. Most of us remember the, the very well-known story of the Italian woodcarver, Geppetto. And Geppetto has a puppet named Pinocchio. 
And you remember that Pinocchio receives a visit. The magic star brings the blue fairy, and the blue fairy makes him into a boy. So from the wood to a boy. And the blue fairy, she appoints, do you remember who? Jiminy Cricket. To be what? His conscience. Pinocchio is told that to be a good boy, he must always what? Let your conscience be your guide. And as the story goes on, you remember that Pinocchio starts ignoring Jiminy. He starts lying, his nose starts growing. And suddenly as he's about to speak, instead of speaking, he makes the sound of a donkey. Meaning from wood to animal to a beast, from wood to a boy, a human being to a beast. I think that there is a very good point there where man is made by God with a conscience. But there is also theological flaws in this idea. Another one, another example about conscience is Mahatma Gandhi. Once he said that there is a higher court than the courts of justice. And he said that that is the court of our conscience. Gandhi said that the conscience supersedes all other courts. And for us, sometimes you say, wow, that's deep. But the question is, is it biblical? Is it true? Another way that people think about conscience is the cartoon that you have seen where there is a person and he has a little angel dressed in white on his right shoulder and then he has the little devil on his left shoulder with the temptations and, and here's the good conscience and here's the and that's how people start picturing the conscience as the good voice that's always telling you what you need to do. In all these cases, Pinocchio, Gandhi, the cartoon, the conscious is portrayed as this infallible, authoritative, dependable guide for right and wrong. And one example that we know very well is the example of Luther, Martin Luther. Remember in the Diet of Worms as he's being attacked, confronted by the Roman Catholic Church, and he's called to recant. And Luther says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and the plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. And then he says, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right or safe. God help me. Amen. And we hear people, they think about Luther and they, and they, they want to imitate Luther and always declare with a bold shout, I cannot go against my conscience. Let us think biblically. Let us think biblically about conscience because Paul is telling us about the conscience of false teachers. Let us think biblically about conscience. 
We can define basically the conscience as our God-given capacity, our God-given ability to be conscious, to be aware of what we believe to be right and wrong. Or one scholar says, our conscience is the inner awareness of the moral quality of one's actions. That's what the conscience works with. You have information, and that information is going to be transferred into a decision-making of what you believe to be right and wrong. God gave us, in creation, as He created Adam and Eve, He gave us the conscience. But like the rest of our bodies, we read earlier from the canons of Dort, the rest of our body, our conscience has been affected by sin. We cannot think, like so many people think, the will or the conscience have not been affected by sin. Our conscience also has been contaminated by sin. Harry Reader, he says, After the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the conscience, like everything else in a person's life, was infected and affected by the original sin. Thus, the conscience rightly desires to guide but because of the fall, we cannot let our unaided and uninformed conscience be our guide. And as you look at these scriptures, we see Paul speaking about the conscience in different ways. So, for example, Paul speaks of people who rejected. They reject a good conscience. And what happens when you reject a good conscience? What do you have? A bad conscience. If you reject a good conscience, what do you have? A bad conscience. So the conscience is not always good. Paul speaks of people who have the conscience seared or insensitive. 1 Timothy 4.2. He speaks of those who have a weak conscience. And as we see in Titus, those who have a defiled conscience. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9.14 Said that our conscience, apart from the work of Christ, are defiled with dead works. And then in Hebrews 10, and I have a typo, there is Hebrews 10, 22. It speaks of evil conscience, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. So we can see that the conscience is not inerrant. The conscience is not this infallible guide for what's right and wrong. Because the conscience can be seared, the conscience can be bad, can be evil. Amen? So here we go. I, I love what R.C. Pro says. He says, we see in the New Testament that the conscience is not the final ethical authority for human conduct. Because the conscience is capable of change. Whereas God's principles don't change, our conscience vacillate and develop. The power of sin can erode the conscience to the point where it becomes a faint voice in the deepest recess of your soul. By this, our conscience becomes hardened and callous, condemning what is right and excusing what is wrong. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, for us to have a biblical understanding of conscience. We have been catechized, we have been taught, and sometimes we teach our children to always listen to your conscience. Always listen to your conscience. 
No. The conscience cannot be this final and ultimate guide for decisions and things that we do. You do not let your conscience be the ultimate judge and decider of things you watch. Oh, I can watch this move. My conscience allows me. What does the Bible say? Oh, I can go to this place because my conscience allows me. Don't, 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 don't tell me about your conscience. Tell me about the Word of God. How is the Word of God guiding your decisions here? That's what's important. You look around our society. Look at American culture right now. More and more people calling good evil and evil good. There has been a drastic transformation of people's conscience. Why are we having so much talk about freedom of conscience in the courts of the United States? So much dealing with freedom of conscience. Remember, there was the Christian baker. And what was he arguing for? His conscience. Why we're having so many issues? Because the conscience of depraved people are not the best guide for actions. Therefore, our highest court is not our conscience. Sorry, Gandhi, you got that wrong once again. Our highest court is the Word of God. And the mantra, always let your conscience be your guide, is not biblical. It's not biblical. To quote reader once again, he says, The antidote to fallen conscience begins with the right use of God's Word as our only rule of faith and practice in life. In other words, we must accurately and intentionally know the Word of God to live under the eye of God. Therefore, as in every other area of our lives, the Word of God must inform the conscience as it is applied to the conscience. The conscience that is valuable is one that is informed and developed regularly and intentionally through the truth of God's Word and the illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit, as well as the properly evaluated insights of trusted fellow believers. Therefore, the highest court is not our conscience, but the courts of heaven from where the scriptures came from. And then you might ask, why are we talking about conscience when we are dealing with pastors and false leaders, leaders in the church and false leaders in the church? Why should we be talking about conscience? And the answer is very simple. The Bible is very clear. True pastors, true leaders, they are men whose conscience are bound, are captive to the word of God, to sound doctrine. Faithful leaders like Luther, Luther was perfectly right to say, I cannot because my conscience is captive to, uh, to my feelings. No, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Paul says that a godly, a biblical shepherd, he has a clear, a clean, a good conscience. Those are the words that Paul uses. A clear conscience is calibrated by the word of God. And it is the shepherd's weapon to protect the flock. You see, the false teachers, they have a defiled, they have a seared conscience. True pastors, they have a sensitive conscience, sensitive to the Word of God, sensible to the Holy Spirit, sensible to the critics of other people. 
So, as we come to Titus 1, by now you remember very clearly the context. Paul left Titus in Crete, in the island of Crete, the Greek area, to put the churches in order. The churches were disorderly. Churches need order. So he needs godly men, orderly men to set the churches in order. And we know the reason why also is because there are many, verse 10 tells us, many false teachers already creeping in the church. So here's the outline of this morning. We're going to continue our journey here. The rod to silence, the rod to rebuke, and then the rod to keep the false shepherds away. So we saw, we saw already in verses 10 and 11, that the leaders, the godly leaders, they have an obligation to silence the false teachers. They have an obligation to gag, to, to muffle, to muzzle the voice of the false teachers. And they will do that primarily by preaching sound doctrine, by teaching the truth. How do we silence the false teachers? How do we help the ears of the flock of God to hear the voice of Christ? By preaching Christ. By preaching Christ. But they are not only supposed to silence, they are supposed also to rebuke. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. We don't like very much the topic of rebuke, but it's all over, all over the scriptures. Paul commands the leaders to rebuke the false teachers sharply, and that means to name the false teachers, to name the false teachings. Not with broad generalities where people can never, never grasp what we are talking about, but name, name names, name the false teachings. And put to death those false teachings in the church. Don't let have life in the church. And we know that when we do that as leaders of the church, when we do that, when we start naming names of false teachers, people get offended. And suddenly, people say, oh, your pastor is not nice. Your pastor is not gracious. And I want to remind you that the duty of the pastors is not to be nice. There's no qualification where it says that pastors are supposed to be nice people. We have a qualification to take care of the flock. And sometimes to take care of the flock of Christ requires a rebuke. Exposing the false shepherds who are creeping in and destroying families, as Paul tells us. And we saw that they were teaching, these false teachers, they were teaching Jewish myths and commands of men. And much of these Jewish myths and the commands of men were these false teachers telling Christians that they needed to come under the Mosaic Covenant. As if they, Christ is good, Jesus Christ is wonderful, but now we need to go back to, the, to Moses. You need to go back and put the yoke of the law over your necks. That's why they're called the circumcision party. Because you need to come back under the Mosaic Covenant and do the things that... Under the old covenant, you were supposed to do. And much of the, the, the teaching was related to food laws. Remember how you eat, you keep yourself pure by what you're eating and the things you're not eating. And that's why as we move to the next section here, starting verse 15, we see that Paul is speaking prim primarily about laws related to eating and food. So he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. And as you read, brothers and sisters, as you read this section here, I think many of you, as you're reading, you could not but be taken back to Mark chapter 7. There are so many parallels with Mark chapter 7 here, as you read these two texts together, dealing with the commands of man, dealing with purity, impurity. And you see that Paul is grounding his teaching on Christ himself. So he says to the pure, the first, the first clean, the first pure is those who have been washed, those who have been purified by Jesus Christ. So to the pure, those who have embraced Jesus, those who love Jesus, those who have been purified by Jesus, all things are what? Pure. It's interesting to think about as the early church was struggling. Remember, they were struggling. Okay, what do we do with Gentiles? Now we have these Gentiles coming to church. What do we do? Are they supposed to keep eating the, 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 the food that we eat? Are they supposed, are we supposed to stop? Acts chapter 15. If you go to Acts chapter 15, that's a wonderful place because that's the first church council where they're deciding what the church is supposed to do. And it's amazing how Peter, as he stands and he speaks for the, the, the elders and the other apostles, we read in Acts chapter 15, Peter says, And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. And look at that, the same, the same word there for purifying. Having purified their hearts by what? Not by the works of the law, but by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you going now to tell Christians to go back and keep obeying the Mosaic law when we could not? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So the pure, the purification of the heart is by grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? So he says, to the pure, all things, all things are what? Pure. And remember that there is a context here that's important. Uh, Paul is not saying that whatever you do is going to be pure and clean before God. Because even in this letter, Paul deals with a lot of things that we should not be doing because they are unclean before God. But there is a context, and the context of these all things here, because you have seen people misquoting the Bible, and they can do all sorts of things, and they get drunk, and they steal, they rob, and they say, to the pure, all things are pure. They can watch the most disgusting things, and do the most horrible things, and still claim to see right there, to the pure, all things are pure. But there is a context, and the context here. The all things are the all things that the false teachers were declaring to be prohibited to Christians. That they could not do it. And Paul is saying that in Christ Jesus, all things are pure. Christ has clothed us with his own righteousness. And no mosaic food law will affect our justification and holiness before God. Eating pork, eating seafood, or abstaining from celebrating Jewish festivals and Jewish holidays will not make you more justified before God. That's what Paul is telling us. It's very similar 
to what Paul tells in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So we start understanding more of what these false teachers were teaching the church, the things that they should abstain to be holier, to be better seeing God's eyes. So, for example, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and what? Teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. And look how they teach these doctrines of demon. Who forbid what? Marriage and abstinence from foods. There is a major denomination that they call themselves Christians where the clergy cannot get married. Forbidding marriage for the leadership. And the same cult also holds that their followers, there are days where they cannot eat certain foods. Very similar. Do you see how these things are, are nothing new? Absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. He's talking about the food, the, 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 the marriage, good things that God created. And for a season under the old covenant, there were certain foods that they could not eat because the Lord was teaching them a lesson. But now under the new covenant in Christ Jesus can be all enjoyed when there is prayer. And here's a wonderful text, why we pray before a meal. Why do we pray before a meal? Because we, we're setting apart that meal to the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your creation. Thank you that I can eat this. So the everything has a context, brothers and sisters. So he says, going back here to Titus, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, there is a contrast. The but here, there is a contrast. There is a contrast between the true Christian and the false professor. The one he only professes but not possesses Jesus. He says to the true Christian, he is pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Anyone who does not stand, we are singing his robes for mine. Any person who does not stand on Christ's righteousness, stands defiled before God. The only way for you to not be defiled before a holy God is by the righteousness of Christ alone. All that you eat, you can abstain for cert from certain foods. All the Jewish feasts that you celebrate, all the mosaic laws that you're trying to keep, they will continue holding you unclean before God. Because the only way for you to be clean before God is by embracing, trusting, running to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Paul is literally turning the table on his opponents. That's pretty hard. These guys here, they claim to be holy. They claim to be pure. Look at our dietary laws. Look at what we keep of Moses. And Paul actually says, they are impure. They are defiled. 
They claim to be clean. They claim to be holy, but they are defiled and perverted because they're outside Jesus Christ. And he says defiled and unbelieving. And that's key. Unbelief defiles everything. Apart from faith, apart from trusting Jesus, everything is contaminated with your sins. Paul says in a very similar context, he says to the Christians in Rome, Romans 14, 23, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from what? Faith. Not conscience, but faith. And he says, for whatever does not proceed from what? Faith is sin. Do you see? Faith is what unites you to Christ. Faith is that hand that takes hold of Christ's righteousness. Faith is that empty hand that just receives Christ Jesus, receives his righteousness. That's why everything you do apart from faith means that you are apart from Christ. And everything that you do apart from Christ will be abominable, defiled before God. Robert Yarbrough, he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Means that all of our thoughts and deeds are connected to our relationship with Christ, whom we confess as Lord of all. When we think and act in difference to his will, or even rejecting his will, sin is the inevitable result. Why? Because we are doing things outside Christ. And whatever is done outside Christ is not pleasing, is not pleasing to the Lord. So that's why he says that they are defiled. In Hebrews, Hebrews 11:6 says that without faith is what? Hard. Without faith is hard to, but you can. You know, I know it's, it's, it's going to be hard, but is that what the author is saying? Without faith is what? Impossible. Impossible to please God. God is not pleased with people who are outside Christ. Why? Because faith unites you to Jesus. Jesus is the beloved. Jesus is the perfect one. Jesus is the righteous one. That's why without faith, it's impossible to please God. He talks about Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved in whom I'm uh, well pleased. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus that is received by faith alone, every single person stands under the frowning face of the holy God. And that's why John will tell us in Revelation, and you see how he puts unbelief and being defile, detestable. He says, but as for the cowardly, the unbeliever, the, the one who does not believe, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be far away from me, far away from my smiling face, from my gracious presence. We'll be actually in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Why only by faith we are embraced by Jesus, God is pleased with us and welcomes us into his presence. That's why Paul used this language to talk about them.
And he continues, he, says, he tells us that to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are what? Defiled. Biblically speaking, when you talk about the mind, the conscience, the heart, those are the things that make us humans. The heart, the mind, the conscience, those are the things that separate us, making us humans. We could say that the mind is the organ that approves the truth, while the conscience is what evaluates the information provided by the mind in making the decision. So they work together. The mind refers to the part of the human system that initiates the thoughts, the understanding. So when Paul says that their minds are defiled, he's literally saying that their minds are the minds of unbelievers. Because the Bible tells us you can go to Romans chapter 8, you go to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. It tells us that those who are not in Christ, their minds are darkened, their minds are defiled. They cannot understand the things of the Spirit because their minds are earthly. That's pretty strong language that Paul is using for this man here. He's not just saying, oh, it's just a difference of opinion that we have. He's literally saying these guys are dangerous. They're not only unbelievers, they're worse because they claim, we are going to see next Lord's Day, they claim to be believers. We could say that the conscience. William Mouse notes that it's the part of the mind that performs moral judgments and ethical evaluations. It refers to one's moral sensibilities. Andrew Nacelli, he has a wonderful book on conscience. He says that our conscience is our, our awareness, our sense of what you believe to be right and wrong. And as we saw earlier, brothers and sisters, sin has affected our conscience. We need to be careful with the idea, just listen to the inner voice that you hear. The inner voice is God speaking to you. Brothers and sisters, God has spoken to us in the book. Unless what you're hearing is the words coming from this book, and you can say, you got to be very careful, very careful. Oh, God, I can hear this voice. That's dangerous. God has spoken to us right here. The conscience is useless if it has been defiled. It gives wrong judgments. Sometimes I hear people saying, my conscience does not condemn me, or my conscience is clear and clean, so I'm going to do that. But be careful, because the conscience, the conscience is deeply affected by sin. The conscience must be always, always guided, instructed by the Word of God. Remember one scholar, professor saying that the conscience is like an alarm clock. And when you sin, it goes off. Bam, bam, bam. And what do you do? Oftentimes you just hit the snooze button. Boom. It's okay. It's okay. And suddenly, you're dead sleep. You're there, sleeping forever. And that conscience stops buzzing. Paul says... Paul says in, second, in 1 Timothy 4, 
He says, now the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit express, expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Look at that. Through the insincerity, the hypocrisy of liars whose conscience are what? Seared. That's why false teachers, sometimes you think, why, how can they keep doing that? How can they go to bed, put their heads on their pillows, and not be affected by their conscience? How can they keep stealing? How can they keep in all sorts of sexual immorality? How can they keep deceiving people? And the reason is simple. Their conscience has been what? Seared. Andreas Kostenberg, he says, their conscience are seared as with a hot iron. That's the picture of the word here, the Greek word. And the Greek word is in a, in a passive form, and he says that it is a diabolical passive, implying that Satan as the agent here, searing their conscience, having been branded, cauterized by the devil, resulting in a loss of sensitivity. A powerful image in a culture, think about the Roman culture, where people were sometimes branded as a punishment for certain crimes. You remember, some slaves, some criminals, they would be branded for certain crimes that they committed. Rendered ineffective by a seared conscience, the opponent's lives and teachings bear the mark of Satan. Another picture we have of this word as a, a hot iron in the in ancient times, sometimes you'd have a cut, and people would come with a hot metal, a hot iron to put there to cauterize and stop. And you know, if you have scars, you know how kind of insensitive the area becomes. And that's what happens to the part of the body, becomes insensitive. And that's the picture of their minds. Their minds are insensitive. When the skin is burned, it becomes insensitive. The nerves have been deadened. The, the skin is no longer able to feel pain. And that's what happens to the human conscience. It becomes cauterized. The more a soul sins, the less painful sin seems. At that point, Riken says, is no longer able to warn the soul against sin. The conscience becomes so hardened, so insensitive, that you wonder, how can these people keep doing that? That's unbelievable. How can they keep doing that? Because their conscience are seared, numb. On the other hand, the true shepherd, the true leaders, the godly people, True Christians, they have a conscience guided by sound doctrine. You know that the true leaders, they must have a conscience that's not hardened, but sensitive to the Holy Spirit's exhortation. So when Paul talks about the mind and the, con the conscience, he's talking about all this faculty that we have where we can think, we can understand, we can apply, we can embrace. So that's why Paul is saying it's impossible for them because it's so defiled, they're their way of thinking and acting is so defiled that there is no way. You see, the sin is not out there. A lot of times you think the sin is out there. The sin is always out there. The Bible tells us the sin is within. The problem is within men. 
was Jesus who said, let's see if I have that text here, yeah. That's Mark, not Matthew, Mark 7. And Jesus said to them, you remember they're talking about the problems with food laws and washings, regulations. And Jesus said to his disciples, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And I had people offended last Sunday because I said that, that Christians are no longer under the obligations of food laws in the Old Testament. It's right here. He declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, weakness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? From the government? From within. And then those people in government will show what's already inside their hearts. The impurity and defilement come from the heart and minds affecting the conscience. And then once the conscience is affected, the acts, the actions, the works are going to be affected. So Paul tells us, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds, their conscience are defiled. And defilement is nasty, because defilement inside does not stop inside. It keeps moving, comes out. It's interesting, in the book of Haggai, the prophet Haggai, we, we see the Lord speaking to them, thus as the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does he become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of this, does he become unclean? The priest answered and said, he does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Why? Because their hearts are defiled. Therefore, all that they are offering to the Lord is necessarily defiled. It's not the outside. It's because it's flowing from the defiled heart. When the mind is defiled, when the heart is defiled, nothing given to the Lord will be acceptable. That's why in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews tells us, pay attention, pay very attention, that no one fails to obtain grace of the, the grace of God. And look at that. Pay attention that no root of what? Bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Where is the bitterness? In the heart, in the mind. And what happens? Springs up and causes trouble. And by it, what? What? Many 
are defiled. It doesn't stop. That's why you must avoid bitter people. It doesn't stop. He's walk with a bitter person, walk with an angry person, and you will be bitter and angry. You will start bringing things in your heart. As you're walking with this person, that will start bringing things in your heart. That you're going to start getting bitter also. That little seed of sin that remains there will start springing up. That's why he says, no. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, I desire that in every place the man should pray, lifting up holy hands, and look at that, without, without anger or quarreling. Why? Because the anger and the quarreling is flowing from the heart and the mind, and the, Paul is saying that will not be acceptable before the Lord. Will not be. It's contaminated. It's defiled. Similar, Peter tells the husbands, and that applies to everybody, that when they're mistreating their wives, their prayers will not be answered. Why? Because of the defilement of the heart. A defiled heart makes everything defiled. So, to finish here, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. So we see that Paul is first of all tracing this contrast between the false leaders, the false shepherds, the false pastors, and the true and godly pastors in a local church. The true pastors, the faithful pastors, they will have their conscience, just like Luther, captive, captive under the captivity of God's word. Their consciences are clean, clear, good, Brothers and sisters, you cannot have your conscience be led by emotions. So many people have their conscience, which leads to actions, driven by emotions. That's why one of the qualifications for pastors is to have a sober mind. They got to be sober in their thinking. Get some people so emotional, so emotional. And whatever they hear here and they hear there, they're always changing. Why? Because they're not using sound doctrine, God's word, to help guide their conscience. Let the word of God guide your conscience. If you are in Christ, you have a new conscience that's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be guided by the Word of God. The author of Hebrews tells us how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So my prayer is that today, You'd run, run to Jesus Christ. Run to Christ. He will embrace you in his arms. He will wash your conscience clean. The author of Hebrews, he has much to talk about conscience. And he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, 
through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil what? conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do not follow Pinocchio. Do not let your conscience be your guide. The word of Christ alone must be our guide. Christ has given us his mind. Paul says we have the mind of Christ, the word of God, to guide us, to help us, to empower us. We sing, we often sing the wonderful hymn here, there is a fountain, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And then when sinners, when sinners plunge beneath the flood, they lose all uh, their guilty stain. The conscience is washed clean, Jesus Christ. Why would you not run to him? Why would you not embrace him and have a new and clean conscience? His arms are wide open. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for being gracious to us. Thank you for revealing your truth to us. We need the truth to guide us, to protect us. So please, please, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, help us to be a church where your word is indeed our guide, where our conscience is taken captive by Christ, by the word of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ, by the life of Christ. So please, Lord, help us. We need your help. There are brothers and sisters here. There are those here who have a guilt conscience. And oftentimes, it, the, the conscience is guilt, is feeling guilty because of sin. And that's a, a gracious aid coming from your hand. Some have sinned greatly. And their conscience has been bothering them. And the beauty of the gospel is that you did not spare your son, but you sent your son. So that we can have a clear and clean and washed conscience before you. Able to approach you and serve you. And even when Satan tempts to despair us, telling us of all the guilt, we have Christ Jesus who died for us. And by his blood, he has washed our conscience. And help us, help us to walk according to your word, Lord. For the glory of your name. Amen.